Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to one of the top two future of podcasting panels taking place in Lower Manhattan tonight. Um, I just want to reiterate a thank you to WNYC um, and just praise their efforts and their work. I am a former WNYCer, and um, they're really generous to host us tonight. And um, I just want to say, you know, we would not be here in every sense of the word. We would not like physically be here right now, and we would not be here right now in this moment if it weren't for the efforts of WNYC and public radio. So thank you again to Laura Walker, wherever you are. Um, let's meet these people. Uh, will you briefly introduce yourselves? And you could follow along on, you could tell we're, we're radio folks. That's as good as our design skills get. Uh, <laughs> Uh, my name is Aaron Lammer. Um, I'm a co-founder of uh, Longform uh, with Max Linsky, who's here. And we also both uh, host the Longform podcast, which is a weekly conversation with a nonfiction writer. Um, I'm Jenna Weiss-Berman, and I'm the director of audio at BuzzFeed.com. And um, I also happen to edit the Longform podcast <laughs> on the side. Yeah. I guess I'm not saying that here. Does BuzzFeed own uh, the, the .nets and the .orgs as well? Um, Do they redirect? You, Do you know? We could find out. Let's find out. <laughs> um, I'm Andrea Slensi. I'm the senior producer of The Gist with Mike Pesca. Um, and I also produce my own podcast called YOY for the community radio station WFMU. Uh, I'm Nicholas Kwa. Uh, I write a newsletter called Hot Pod about podcasts. And for some reason, I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> is here for a very good reason, which we will all find out very soon, right? Nick? Sure, yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah, let's go to that. Okay. Um, so I'm just going to say this word out loud since we were inevitably going to back into it at some point. Serial. All right, serial. <laughs> Someone was going to mention it. And, um, you know, we are in many ways here because of serial, which kind of, sort of came out of nowhere to sweep the nation last fall. It reached audiences that had never really been seen before in the podcasting world, audiences which rivaled shows such as last Friday's episode on the, Dis on the Discovery Channel of Alaskan Bush People, got about the same number of <laughs> listeners as Serial. Uh, Alaskan Bush People is a reality show that follows the Brown family raised in remote Alaska, so cut off from civilization that they developed their own language and customs. In last Friday's episode of Alaskan Bush People, the Brown family worked to build the walls and roof of their new home, but snow and setbacks threatened to derail their hard work at every pass. Alaskan Bush People Fridays on the Discovery Channel, just about the same number of listeners as Serial. Uh, but <laughs> more generously and seriously, Serial uh, got uh, about five million downloads per episode, blowing most podcasts out of the water. And as Fast Company put it recently, and as Nick excerpted in his recent hot pod, uh, more people have downloaded Serial than have watched Girls, Mad Men, or Louie. So it's undeniably a cultural force and was kind of both part of a rising wave, it came along at a perfect time, but it certainly created its own way that is hoping to lift our respective boats of podcasting. So um, I'm just curious about the, the audience here, uh, before we get into it, who here listened to a podcast today? All right, that's almost everyone. Uh, who here regularly listened to podcasts one year ago? Nick, no? Nick has actually never listened to a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> uh, how about two years ago? And five years ago? 
Did podcasts exist? Yes, they yeah, existed five years ago. Um, who here listens to podcasts that sort of fall on the more storytelling side of the spectrum as opposed to conversation side of the spectrum? And who here likes the conversation podcasts? Uh, who here has gone to stamps.com and entered a promo code? <laughs> All right, two people. We are fucked. <laughs> we need to find a new funding model. Um, <laughs> so... Clearly, a lot has changed in the last year, um, but I want to just project to maybe five years from now and look back at this moment, and what are we going to look back at as winter 2015, this moment in podcasting? Are we going to see it as the moment everything changed or the moment the bubble got inflated to as big as it could possibly be? Uh, Aaron, you want to start? Well, I think it would it's sort of a mistake to look at things from the very top and, and look at like the the serials of the world. Like, I think that the internet has always been this democratic uh, media type. So I would look more at the people who have listened to serial and are thinking about making their own shows now and the sort of huge, huge spectrum of small shows that are probably going to come out over the next few years. And I don't know, it feels to me more like, like when something like Blogger came out um, and there was this huge profusion of people using it for different kinds of things. And, Blogger and folded, right? What's that? Just to be clear, did Blogger has Blogger folded? No, no, no. Google owns it. Oh, okay, so we'll get bought. Damn it, Joe. Sorry. <laughs> um, so, so that that's sort of how I would see the future. Is I don't think there will probably be a ton of serial hit-like shows, but I think that there will be lots of. It's it's a cult medium that that really um, lends itself to passionate smaller audiences, and I would think that those will just be arising everywhere. Do any of you not see it as as cult? Do any of you see it as really breaking through? When we, do we, are we saying five years from now, or are we saying right now? In five years, where will we be? Uh, I don't think it's going to be a blogger-style transformation of... I don't think podcasts are sort of an evolution of blogging or even an analog to blogging, I think. So if you were to phrase the question like, is there a bubble, um, and what are we seeing five years then, what would we be seeing now? It's not a sh I don't think it's a turning point in which people started listening to podcasts more. But I think the shifts is in stuff like the formation of Gimlet, the formation of more publishers moving into the podcasting space, and like the rise of what I like to consider like the podcast networks, which double as like the the nodes of which the structure for the industry kind of revolves around. But they're getting into the game because they think there's yeah, a they're huge pouring, audience. They're pouring money into it, I think. And I think as they pour into it, I think advertisers will also begin to pour into it. I mean, why is BuzzFeed getting into the podcast game? Well, they did call me like two weeks into Serial's explosion to be like, we need a, we need someone to make podcasts for us. Um. And half, for the record, half the people in this room have probably been pitching a podcast to BuzzFeed for the last five years, and it's right. gone nowhere. But anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's why BuzzFeed and a lot of companies are getting into it. It's like, not just because of Serial, but it is a good. It's, al it's also like podcasting, I think, is a very like intimate medium. Um, and so, which I think I've heard people <laughs> say that before. It's not like a, I'm not saying anything <laughs> revelatory. But um, yeah, like a lot of what BuzzFeed does is very, it's like massive reach kind of things. And so podcasting is good for companies because it sort of like brings in a m much more like devoted very like dedicated and like intimate audience and so um i think that's part of why a lot of media companies want to make podcasts right now but does buzzfeed think podcasts are going to be a sizable chunk of their massive audience or is it just this little fun thing to do on the side 
Um, I don't know if, sh- if I'm ready to answer that question. Um, but I think, like, to me, I don't know. When I think about making podcasts, I'm not usually thinking about how to get the hugest audience. So maybe BuzzFeed feels the same way. It's more about, like, how to get, a like, a dedicated um, audience to listen to, like, a quality product. Wait, and so, like, a prestige show kind of thing? Uh, like a lost leader? Like a what? Like a lost leader kind of situation? Um, maybe. I mean, they're, like, the way that, if I'm getting, like, really into, like, how BuzzFeed runs, um, the way that it, like, a lot of BuzzFeed is, like, there are these huge things that we know will do really well um, that are sort of, like, funding a lot of other things at BuzzFeed. So there's, like, we have a really great investigative team that not that many people know about. Um, it was just built over the past year. And I think that podcasts will be sort of similar to that, where it's like we can make these really great quality things that don't necessarily have to have massive audiences because we have massive audiences for for other things. So we're making kind of like, we're not necessarily making podcasts that are going to appeal to like super broad audiences. We're sort of like focusing them on smaller audiences. But this, I'm not going to use the phrase "loss leader." But uh, <laughs> this, but this notion that yeah, like that freaks me did, out, dude. Uh, yeah, it's like, yeah, that's for the <laughs> newsletter th- types. Um, loss leader. But uh, but this notion that you make a podcast and it has a purpose other than your main purpose of you know reaching huge audiences and ma- making real money, I think has existed for a lot of places. I mean, I think it's how. To some extent, the, the long-form podcast started as something you just wanted to do to sort of have another voice, and then it started to reach a real audience. I know at 538, we're thinking of it as a place to sort of show our personality. We're not banking on it to make real money. And then at Slate, I think, for a long time, it was kind of how people real sort of got to know the personality of Slate, or at least for a lot of people. But in the last year, Slate has actually started to make some real money from it, right? I, I can't look in the wallets of my bosses. I'm not exactly <laughs> right sure now, actually. about my that. Um, but I know that a lot of the editors rose up through podcasting. You know, they started as kind of young assistant editors, and now Julia Turner, host of Culture Gabfest, is our editor-in-chief. And there's a huge value for podcasting at Slate that's a big part of what we do. All the writers are listening to podcasts, talking to me about podcasts. And the audience for podcasts is growing. I don't think that this is a bubble, meaning that there's no substance or quality behind what's being made. Podcasts are wonderful. There's a reason why we're all listening to them. They're this corner of the internet that we can take with us, where we're not looking at screens, where we can be out in the world and engage them. And we love podcasts for the same reasons we love radio. So my hope for five years from now is um, we solve a lot of the technology problems that have been holding podcasting back. Um, we keep, this is like every time the technology gets easier, the audience grows. So I feel like a big part of the growth we've been experiencing around Serial has to do with uh, the podcast app coming on the iPhone 6 suddenly. That's a huge moment for podcasting and the numbers reflect audiences growing around that. So I'm excited to meet the needs of growing audiences who want great content. So let, we'll talk about technology, but you guys brought clips of podcasts you love. Uh, so let's listen to some stuff. Uh, can we go to the next slide, please? Uh, Aaron, you want to just sort of set this up? Oh wow! I asked uh, each of them. Re- I asked each of them to pick. me to rem- uh, remember what I sent. Um, <laughs> oh no, this is. Uh, I do remember. Um, this is uh, the the podcast we had on last week. I thought it was more fair to do this as a representative sample. Uh, so the guest on our podcast was uh, Rukmini Kalamaki, who is the New York Times reporter who covers ISIS. 
Um, you've probably read, seen a lot of her stories on, on the front page. Um, I don't remember what we're talking about in this clip, but I'm sure it's excellent. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's listen to it. It was the turning of a new leaf when I realized that, you know, we seem to think that because they're terrorists and they do the worst thing possible, you know, yeah. which is killing civilians, that therefore they must also be lawyers. And certainly some of them are, and certainly they exaggerate, and certainly they, they say things that are untrue sometimes. But it's been my experience that if you manage to touch the leadership, or people that are in the circumference of the leadership, and if you create sort of a system for talking to them, that they can be reliable sources. Well, it seems like almost that assuming that groups are liars, it's sort of a comforting assumption right. because it suggests that everything is bluster and that, that it's purely propaganda. It's not strategy. But in that same dump of stuff that you found in Timbuktu, yes. and, and this is the reporting you did for the AP, and for this the was AP. in 2013, yes. which you won a um, Pulitzer for. No, no, I was a finalist. <laughs> you were, which you finalized. I, I, I wish I'd won the Pulitzer for. <laughs> Like on this show, you won the Pulitzer, <laughs> yes. uh, which you were nominated for a Pulitzer on. Yeah. Um, there was a trove of documents that basically outlined an Al Qaeda strategy for the establishment of a state. In, exactly. Um, in, and the stuff in it isn't like, let's kidnap people and torture them. It's basically like, people love trash collection. If you can <laughs> nail trash collection, you've got them. And totally. So. <laughs> So other than the fact that you can issue a correction in real time during a podcast, yes. uh, what, I mean, what, what, what does that say about your show? Why did you pick that? Um, I, I think I picked that because um, I think it demonstrates uh, a value to the, sh the show that we run, um, which is that there's all of these people doing journalism all over the world, and the story of how they do their job there's an equally interesting backstory that actually tells you a lot about the subjects they cover. So um, I don't know if it came through in that particular clip, but um, this is a person who's basically spent the last year um, you know, in communication with James Foley's family, um, uh, tracking the Kwachi brothers through Paris, um, has really like touched on a lot of the like most important stories of this year. Um, and, and that's what we try to do with the podcast. We, we try to... Um, show how people do the job of reporting stories. Jenna, do you want to set up your clip? Sure. We'll cruise through these and then we'll keep talking. But. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, this is fun because I actually haven't really played this for anyone because BuzzFeed is launching its first two podcasts next month. Um, and so this is unreleased exclusive. Um, and basically what... All that you need to know, I'll tell you more after I play it, but what you should know is that this is a girl telling a story. She went to a party that she thought was going to be like a lot of like hot young like artists for her to date, and it turned out to be um, a birthday party for a 65-year-old man um, <laughs> in Flatbush. So um, this is like this is her this is her sort of like describing some of the people at the party. So a cat daddy, for those listening who are not familiar, a cat daddy is a 65-year-old plus man who dresses in nothing but Steve Harvey suits, mm -hmm. Stacey Adams shoes of very loud colors, linen very shirts, loud. very yeah. loud. And they go to these, like, clubs on the weekends, and they just like to go and, like, buy young girls drinks. Yeah. Which is why I love a cat daddy. I'm I broke. Mean, sure. It's not payday. <laughs> yes. Listen, let's will, go to Frank's yes. in Brooklyn and see what we can do, you okay. know? So they walk up to you and they're just like, hey, how you doing? How you doing? 
Uh, I'm like, I'm, I'm fine. Oh, well, I can see you fine, but I asked you how you doing. <laughs> don't, don't, don't. So this is a cat daddy, okay? Oh, man. Every man there who was not a DJ, there were only two DJs. So basically every man there is a cat daddy. Now, in a club situation, you, I, there's something that we can trade, right? You can buy me a drink. I'll give you a few minutes of conversation. Then I take my black ass home here. <laughs> The drinks are already free, so I don't want to talk to you guys. However, so we're sitting on a bench, me and all five of my friends, and like there's a literal arc of cat daddies, just like oh. they like built a, a wall, that like, like, a <laughs> like a flying V of poorly dressed geese, <laughs> <laughs> is what this was. That's great. I'm glad we got to hear that. Uh, do you, you want to say anything about that clip? Um, sure. I mean, I'm I'm really excited to launch this show. It's these two girls, um, Heaven Nigatu and Tracy Clayton, who are very. Which popular. one was which? Um, Tracy was telling the story, okay. and, and they're 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 like very very different from each other too, which is exciting. Like, I feel like a lot of podcasts have two hosts who you can't always tell, you all can't always tell the difference between them. Um, but they're, they like have really different experiences. One of them is like a Southern girl in her thirties and the other is like an Ethiopian immigrant in her twenties. And um, they, I'm just, I'm really excited about this podcast partially because there's been like a big conversation lately that some of you may have been following about like the, the whiteness of the public radio voice um, that transom.org published something and then BuzzFeed picked that up, and then there was a big like Twitter conversation between Audie Cornish um, at NPR and Gene Demby also at NPR. Um, so it's been like a really interesting issue, and I'm really excited that we get to make this podcast that sort of counters a lot of the uh, white male-dominated <laughs> podcasts that are out there right now. So um, yeah, so look for that probably March 17th. Um, on that question of diversity, you know. I think one of the big failures of social media was there was this promise that it could sort of bring you new voices. And instead we see it's just as easy to sort of build a, a silo for yourself in, with social media, with Twitter, Facebook, as it is to discover new things. And I, I wonder if you feel like podcasts can break through that or are people going to just find the podcasts that are the people who sound exactly like them? I mean, I don't know that I don't know that podcasts are going to be like any different than any other medium. I mean, I think like Heaven and Tracy, they have big audiences, but they mostly have like have black audiences, and I think that that's probably what we're going to see for this show too. So I'd love to say that like podcasting is going to like change the racial like all race relations, but I don't think that's going to happen. Um I mean, my like I think like part of our goal with this is like we want it to appeal to a broad audience, but at the same time we don't want to make their voice we don't want to like work on making it so digestible that it's not who they are basically, if that makes sense. But a Andrea and or Nick or whoever, uh you know, podcast audiences follow follow you from one podcast to another uh, in a way I think maybe more than any other medium. You can, I mean, that's what Slate did so well. It's what a lot of networks do really well is they take the audience they built here and then they point them over, over here and, and they, they go, they trust you. So I don't know if you <laughs> do know. that with this show. Yeah, we'll I don't know. I will, like I was at the moth before this. I don't think it's going to be a similar audience. <laughs> um, if you guys know the moth, it's a very different show than this. So yeah, I don't yeah, know. It's similar audience to this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, you want to talk about your clip? 
Sure. Um, so the gist is a daily show hosted by Mike Pesca. Um, and we, we, just about every show features um, uh, two interviews and the spiel. So this clip is from one of our two interviews that day. Um, and it's just the very tail end of the conversation. So I just want you guys to hear how we uh, say goodbye to this guest. <laughs> Social media and the internet has really um, sort of decentralized for us. Hua Su teaches at Vassar College. He's a Ford Academic Fellow. For The New Yorker, he's written The Civility Wars. And Hua, let me say, you are an insufferable fuckwad. Get the hell out. <laughs> Wait, I You're an inspiration for us all. I probably should have been nicer. Thanks very much. Thank you. So that was a conversation about civility. <laughs> um, and Mike Pesca got in an incredible zinger right at the end. And I, I, I love the idea of, like, where else would you hear that if we, you know, obviously we couldn't broadcast on NPR because of FCC reasons. But if that were on, like, your average public radio station, forgetting that the FCC exists, we'd be worried about, you know, people pulling their cars off the side of the road. Like, I feel like in the podcast space, we're allowed to be deeply funny and any kind of, like, random whim that Mike Pesca has, we can indulge and really highlight. And it's deeply memorable. Like, if you heard that in the middle of an interview that was just like a very smart conversation about civility and the internet, um, that would stick. So we, I think we heard that in all three of the clips so far, just this sort of freedom and this ability to sort of let things play out a little bit more. Uh, the three of us, have, Andrea, uh, Jenna, and I have edited for public radio, and we've edited for podcasts. Do you, Want to talk a little bit about how different that is? It is very different. Um, I mean, you just, it's like something that people are also saying about podcasts lately. I should just like take credit for these statements. You can go to the other <laughs> panel if you want. <laughs> no. You're probably saying the same things over there. Awesome. Um, I think that like with podcasts, you just, you do have a lot more freedom. Um, and like, I love public radio, but like I was working on a project at NPR over the summer and Every like every time I edited anything, we had to basically like make sure that there was like nothing controversial, nothing like that, that like seemed political on the right or the left. Um, and I think like I imagine that some of that comes from them getting some government funding and um, not and like knowing that they could lose that government funding if they seem like they're too particularly on the left. Um, so that was it's it like ends up being kind of limiting in a lot of ways and. I think like what I've been most excited about with this podcast that I just played a clip from is like we're really like these people have very developed personalities and like that is something you hear on the, some on like the Slate podcast too especially like Mike's show um that Andrea produces like they're not saying like you can't have a personality they're saying like we want you to have a great big personality and that's like what we want people to come in and listen to. So that's been like an exciting and kind of freeing thing about not being in public radio, if I'm being honest. And there's a, for, I, th there's a tone thing and different shows have different kind of uh, appetites for personality in public radio and in other radio, but there's also just a format thing. I mean, we, you know, when you have to cut something to seven minutes and 15 seconds exactly and fit it into a show that's gonna fit on the clock in public radio, it's constricting, and often the first thing to go is, you know, the joke or the moment that doesn't advance the narrative but is, like, you know, memorable in that other way. And uh, the freedom to just kind of say, let it breathe. Yeah, and also there's this, these, like, this burden of reset. So if you're listening to um, your traditional radio broadcast, you have to constantly remind people who the guests are, who you're talking to. 
um, reset the topic, you know, make it incredibly clear who's speaking right now. And even then, they might not know the difference between Brian and Leonard. Um, and with this, we just get to get right to the meat of the show and get right, right to the topic. So Aaron Lammer from Longform has given his. Uh, Jenna Weiss-Berman has given hers from BuzzFeed. Andrea Salenzi of, the, of Slate has given hers. They're joining us here. And now it's time for Nick Kwa of Hot Pod to play his clip. You want to set this up? I've, all right. Like, so I'm not a radio producer. I'm not a podcast producer. I, I have very limited talent when it comes to anything creative beyond the written word, and I don't even think I'm that talented anyway. You came up with the best name for a newsletter it ever. Wasn't my, it wasn't my name. I okay. was really... And great uh, gifts. Really good gifts. Anyway. And good Hot gifts. Pod. So... Hot Pod. So, subscribe now. Subscribe now. TinyLetter.com slash Hot Pod. TinyLetter, also a sponsor for many, many, many podcasts. Yes. Um, <laughs> only sponsors one podcast, Tiny Letter. You're the or only... The, or, or, you're the, the only? or the original Tiny Letter sponsor. Right. But they've oh. sponsored more than Tiny I think only than. MailChimp does. I think we're... Can I get a fact check on that? Thank you. Has anyone here heard a tiny letter spot? <laughs> Hold on, I'll, I'll verify it. I'll get back to you. No, no, uh, Roman Mars. We're going right. to lose you Every your sponsorship. Every episode of 99% Invisible. <laughs> All right, Nick. What she said. Um, so when Jody asked me to pick out a clip, uh, I was in the middle of, of a lot of thinking about podcast genres because I, I, I think part of the difficulty of planning it out organizationally is like really trying to understand what is the basic format, what is the basic way of putting sort of different kinds of shows into the buckets? And you know, successively, how do you sort of market those things? But anyway, I ended up going with a Wolf Pop, uh, which is a podcast network. One of their podcasts is called The Canon. Uh, it's, a, it's a film podcast in which two hosts discuss a film and whether it's, it's merited into some sort of arbitrary canon. And it really just involves two people um, arguing over the merits and demerits of, of, a, certain, of a certain movie. Uh, but this particular clip that I picked out is not related to the main meat of the, um, of the podcast, but it's sort of the preamble, what did she watch this week, what did I watch this week, and, it's, and it's, uh, I think it's a good, for me at least, it's a good example of the basic unit of, of what a podcast is, like, like a storytelling unit, so I guess you can play it right now. So Finders Keepers is a documentary set in North Carolina, and you guys know the show Storage Wars, where people just like buy a storage locker that's gone into remission sight unseen, they don't really know exactly what's in it. This guy buys a storage locker. Inside the storage locker is a smoker. Inside the smoker is a severed leg. And the owner of the severed leg is still alive and one-legged and wants his leg back. And, and that setup becomes this really interesting documentary about not just ownership, but how much symbolism does a leg have to both men. To one man, he thinks this leg is what's going to bring him reality TV show fame, the kind of fame that he really values above almost everything. And to the other man, his leg which he didn't take good care of because if he did, he would have paid the bills on his storage account, means so much to him about what he's been through in his life. And it's, and it's a leg. And it's a leg. Yeah. That's the third symbolism. It's a leg. So what I really liked about a clip is that it's like literally, to me, the basic unit, the basic storytelling unit of like radio or podcasting or audio, whatever you want to call it. It's somebody explaining something to another person and then somebody, uh, and then that person analyzing that thing. But what doesn't come up from that clip is the reaction from the other person to that thing. And it's sort of this dialectical thing in which like two people sort of butt heads or sort of converse about, about whatever is being told. And then sort of the story and sort of the larger significance of those things being said comes out from it. So to me, that, that's like, that's the basic storytelling unit in my head, at least. I don't know, I'm not a pr producer, but I, you know, when I listen to 99% Invisible, when I listen to um, you know, Long Form, 
when I listen to interview-based, even narrative, non-fiction uh, radio, that's slightly different, but I think it works by very similar principles. So I don't know. It's, I'm just rambling, but you know. You asked but, me and that's clip. and that's all over the clip. Sorry, that's all over the clip that you played, right? Mm -hmm. The sort of reaction is as much of the story. And Aaron, I mean, it's in your podcast as well. How much do you think about that yeah. as your role to be the person who's reacting? I was going to say that just listening to this uh, spectrum of clips, I think the thing that's notable about them, as compared to uh, other media, is that they all kind of sound like uh, two friends talking to each other. Um, about very different things. Like we started with like two friends talking about ISIS, and then we, we already ended did up the with like Aaron. two We're friends good. talking about um, someone who lost a leg in a storage locker. Um, and I think that those kind of relationships, like there's a weird empathy thing that connects with an audience, where when you spend a lot enough time with people being kind of friendly and like having a conversation you might have with someone you say went to Wesleyan with. Um, that those relationships are, are sticky and you want to come back to them. I mean, um, we've been doing long form for about five years and we've been doing this podcast for about two years and people will come up to me and introduce themselves um, about the podcast. No one ever introduces themselves to me about the website. Um, I think that these are like direct human connections and I think that's probably the most unique thing about podcasting is the people who become fans of it are like, pretty fanatic in the way that they identify with them. Like just even that clip that Jenna played, I was like, I already kind of felt like I was having like a weird intimate relationship with the people in the show and that was the first minute. So you can imagine if I listened to that show for the next five years, how I would feel about those people. Andrew, is that a, is that a technology thing or a format thing? Is it about the fact that it's in your earbuds? Hmm. I don't know. I feel like no matter, I don't know, maybe we need to stop with this, I don't really feel difference between podcasting and radio so clearly, but I definitely listen in all mediums for relationships. When I was like a very early volunteer at WNYC, I was working an event and a woman came up to me and she was like, how old are Brian's children now? Right. Like I remember when they were, she met, said on the air that they were eight and 11, like three years ago. So they should probably be 11 and 14 now. But like people feel these deep relationships with radio and it's, it has to do with the way we listen, I think. And if that appeals to you, you have this um, really personal connection to it. So I can't listen to enough podcasts, but the most memorable episodes that I've ever listened to have that kind of like, it's, some, it's a couple getting in a fight or it's um, two best friends catching up on a podcast. It's always, if you look at the slate list of um, the best 25 podcasts of all time, um, the winning one, the number one ranked one was Mark Marin and Louis C.K. having this very intimate conversation about what happened with their friendship. So I think this is some key to how we listen, and I, I think we can incorporate that into how we do journalism sometimes. Definitely on the gist, um, we, we acknowledge when someone's a friend of Mike's. Uh, Mike, we recently spoke with someone who was a, a loser on um, who wants to be a millionaire. Or he, lost, he won some money. He just didn't win like all the money that he really He lost more won. money than he won. Yeah. <laughs> um, and he was heartbroken about it. And uh, our host, Mike Pesca, also had a Jeopardy story. And I feel like when you can be honest <laughs> about like your personal experiences and connect over them, that's just, it works for the listener. It's a win for everyone. So... All the clips we've played and all the podcasts that we work on, one of us excluded, uh, <laughs> are like talk show podcasts, right? They're, they're Gab Fest style shows. And then there's 
you know, Invisibilia, Serial, Startup. Is podcast too broad of a term to encompass this whole universe? Nick? Actually, I'm still thinking about the, you mentioned the difference between radio and podcasting. Uh, and I think it does tie into this question of whether podcasting is too sort of ineffective a word. Um, I don't think so. I think it's, it's, it's cultural nomenclature. The only difference, there are two only differences in my mind cultural between between radio and podcast. That's one it, loss leader and one cultural <laughs> nomenclature. Right. English is a second language. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine what you're doing in your first language. <laughs> Pirouettes. Uh, th there are two differences. So the first difference, I think, is it's pure and it's purely distribution, right? One is one is on demand and one is streaming, live. Whatever that means, broadcast. Okay. So there, you know, structurally, if you put it back, is that the structure informs whatever the content is. You know, content is merely liquid in a bucket. Um, did I actually just say that? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. But the the, the 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 more important differences is the communities that form around those two things, and the and sort of the con the sort of stories that come out from it. Like the public radio voice thing is like a really important emergence of uh, I think a cultural frustration with the very strict bucket that radio, which is inherently a very limited sort of distribution source, is. And I think now with this whole on-demand thing, I don't really like to be techno-utopian, but there is a larger opportunity for like more anal uh, podcast analogs to scandal or something, and which is, I think, something that you're working on. And, and you know, so I don't even know if that's relevant to what you just asked. No, I agree, I agree with that. I think that like the on-demand nature of podcasts means that people curate their own selection of podcasts, which is like a fundamental difference. You know, if you listen to the radio, you probably listen to the radio like in specific hours in your day and you're in some ways mapping that experience to what's on the radio at that specific hour of the day. Um, I think one of the more unique parts about podcasting is that everyone's kind of like picking their set of three to five podcasts to sort of invest their time in. And that's a great limitation. Um, it, it reminds me of the way that people are like, hey, what shows are you watching? Or all these other things that people gain excitement about. It also means there's like a limited stock. Like um, what I was saying about that sort of empathy that you get for your listeners, that's not like infinite. You can't feel that way about 75 different podcasts, the way that you surf Facebook and are clicking through on every piece of link bait that your uncle pushed through into a feed. You just can't have that relationship to podcasts. So the three to five podcasts you choose, you're going to have a deep relationship to. And I think that like really informs the medium that people who are making them can assume that people have this deep, sticky relationship. I think that that, that was true within radio or is true within radio, but it only applies to a certain segment of the population who say drives to work every day or flips on in the shower or a show. And I think podcasting can sort of map to any sort of life in that way. But so, so, so much of podcasts growth has been about routine. You know, you put it on when you get on the train and it's there for you for your train ride. And if your train ride is like 20 minutes long, that means you maybe listen to the gist instead of the long form podcast because that's how long it is. I mean, so does, are you saying routine has less to do with podcasting? It's less based on a specific time of day or when a specific show is broadcast. You're picking whatever your podcast time is, and you're fitting a certain number of shows into it. Um, and I think that opens up, you know, podcasts to international audiences, and you know. But 
I guess I, I guess I see that diff- as a, a distinction from radio because radio has always been about formats that were locked to specific times of day. Right. Do you um, guys? Oh, go ahead. Well, you had asked what podcasting is going to look like in five years, and I'd be so excited if we were calling it radio. Um, the same way that we think of television as television, whether or not we're watching on our television, it would be so exciting if we just started to adapt the word radio. But don't we talk about Netflix and Hulu and all that stuff in a different no, category No, I would say I watched, I watched High Maintenance last night. And I watched High Maintenance because I paid you know $7 or something on Vimeo. But I think of it as a television show, and I, and I have a relationship with it as a television show. Um, that's such uh, a really interesting like yeah, five I don't years know, I don't know if I'd buy that <laughs> I mean, really? I, I, it just feels you would, like would you tell a friend I was watching Hulu? what's that? Hulu has like a shameful association <laughs> with me <laughs> maybe not Hulu but uh, I, I would say yeah I watched The Bachelorette you know right. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say I was watching Hulu because Hulu didn't pick my programming for me I have a relationship with specific I, I have a Hulu question for you Jody. okay when yeah. you say you work in radio <laughs> do people say or when you worked in radio yes. people do people say what radio shows do you listen to? They ask that of me? Yes. What radio shows? No. If you say you listen to podcast, particularly if you say you do a podcast, the first question people ask right. is, what podcast do you listen to? I think that's a fundamental shift between podcasts and radio. And I agree. Like People ask you what shows you listen to. If that trend continues, then I do think podcasts become radio in the way that they're a traded currency between people and uh, an overlap between people that people can talk about. And Look, how much do you think podcasts still need radio? I mean, if you look at the top 20 podcasts on iTunes, a lot of them got a jump because they were featured on big radio shows. Uh, big podcasts too, but big radio shows. Uh, we were making the list earlier. Death, Sex, and Money, The Gist, Invisibilia, Startup, and Serial all got a bump from This American Life. Radio Lab also featured Invisibilia. 99% Invisible I got a huge bump when it was on Radio Lab. So do podcasts still need traditional terrestrial radio? Well, you're considering This American Life just a radio show. What I'm, what, what I've tried to argue about with you before. You're, you're actually arguing it right now. I'm, and now I will for everyone. Um, is that This American Life is also a podcast, and it has a huge podcast audience. And a lot of the podcasts, a lot of the shows that it's been promoting, I imagine that like people are hearing it as a podcast and being like, oh, I want to listen to these other podcasts. So. Um, I don't know. So I don't think that you can totally say that like it's the radio audience necessarily or like the radio aspect of it that is giving it giving these other shows a bump. It's also that it's like it's a very popular podcast. And at NPR now, um, more and more shows are like getting these like the Ted Radio Hour was NPR's first show that now has more than half of its audience as podcast listeners, which is an interesting fact, because it used to be that like the vast majority of people listening to these public radio shows were listening on the radio. Now more and more people are listening as a podcast. So I don't know, radio waves. I don't know how relevant they'll be for that much longer. I think they're going to be pretty relevant, but (laughs) I disagree. With who? (laughs) The premise of your question. Okay. (laughs) <laughs> that's a cop that's a cop out but go ahead okay wait all right i'll take the privacy question i think it's true for public radio shows 
because I'm still trying to that they get this bump. Right. I mean, it's it's you're taking a show made for this particular audience that listens to public radio, and you want them to connect to this public radio thing that was made to the podcast, so you put it on a public radio show. It doesn't quite account for something like WTF with Mark Marin. Doesn't necessarily. Well, that got on WNYC early on. Um, you know, it got some, and it was Jesse Thorne was a big, who's right. a public radio person. So that is coming from the public radio universe. I, well, the problem here is that yeah. it's really hard to tell that because. Nope. Is that where their audience came no, from? No, no, no. no, I don't know. I mean, yeah, long, I mean, long I like, well, from, did she ever get picked up by? We've never had anything right. to do with a radio station. Right. I'm just like, there's no data. I mean, it's really hard to really find good data to support or refute, to support or refute that um, thesis or argument. But I, I don't think so. I think podcasting is more reliant on the mobile device than it will ever be on radio. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. And the, know. when you look at the iTunes top 20, cert, you know, Six months ago, a year ago, it had a real public radio feel to it, and that is eroding, I think, pretty clearly month by month. Is that just going to continue? But it still has a pretty big public radio feel right now. You asking me? Yeah. I don't think public radio is ever going to go away, but I think, I mean, it's like, uh, I think I mentioned this before, but like, uh, nothing ever really goes away if it's publicly funded, and nothing ever really goes away when there's already a community sort of fumbling around it. The question is, will it ever be as big? Will it lose, and w- at what point does it stop losing audiences? Um, I don't know. I'll pass I, this I, on to I think that it's sort of a, a bit of a red herring, the radio element. I mean, you know, if you're a, a well-known author and then someone gives you a TV show, you'll sell a ton of books. It doesn't mean that like being on TV is the best way to sell books. TV is just like a giant medium. So I, I think the same is th- true for radio. But when you look at like sort of where. Um, uh, where the inspiration and originality is deriving from. I think that radio stations are well situated to create podcasts. They have like studios and audiences, and it absolutely makes sense that uh, something like, say, Radio Lab comes out of WNYC. But I don't think that that's necessarily a one to one that um, you need an audience like that to, to build a podcast. I, I think that actually um, podcasting is really unique in how easy it is to put up a podcast and to create a show and that generally those kind of mediums um, resolve themselves to sort of their simplest form and it uh, seems to me like the simplest form isn't having a radio station that produces many, many shows. It's like two microphones in a room is kind of all you need. Nicholas said something amazing in my favorite podcasting newsletter, um, Hot Pod. Um, <laughs> after that... Um, Was it that liquid yeah. is the bucket that we're... Tinyletter.com <laughs> slash... But um, he said this thing after the serial panel at New School, which was um, that public radio's future is podcasting, but podcasting's future... Um, podcasting doesn't need public radio to have a future like podcasting. I would. Uh, I, I hit. How that, did you say? I hit that, <laughs> that was but, a typo. Yeah. No, it was. But like, it was, it was it, exactly it, what someone should have said on that stage. Yeah. They weren't. They I, I weren't agree. saying that on that stage. There is a lot of like. No, um, so there was a lot of you know our glass love. Uh, a lot of uh, this my glass love. You know. Um, I don't really have the numbers. Um. <laughs> the the statement that I now is the thing that I'm going to say. Um, it's that <laughs> podcast. The second half of that sentence is that that podcasting doesn't necessarily have to do its success doesn't necessarily have to do anything with public radio. Like it, you know, theoretically and conceptually and like practically really doesn't. 
people can find audiences, and as long as it's sort of leveraged sort of digital formats a little better or a little bit more aggressive, and we wait for the right technological innovation, it's coming. It's, I'm pretty sure it's coming pretty soon. Um, and you know, public radio is just going to be an actor within it. It's not going to be like a central backbone to it. Can a podcast build an audience completely from scratch and reach a big level? I mean, you, you know, you're building an audience on the back of a successful website. You're going to be doing the same. You, well, all of us are doing that. Uh, well, the Gist had a really unique yes. pledge drive. We said, um, here's how you donate to The Gist. You find a friend, you grab their iPhone, you show them how to subscribe to podcasts, and you download The Gist. And we right. said that for about a week. And after a week, we shot back up the iTunes charts. Like, we actually saw a numerical like growth from asking people to do that. Um, so it's kind of exciting that I think our audience is the way that we grow, that teaching people about podcasting and solving the problems of the technology might be a key. Um, well, I think like, it, like you're sort of asking like, does, like can podcasting be successful without public radio? But that's sort of like asking like, will there still be books if like Simon & Schuster shuts down? Mm -hmm. Or will there still be articles if there's no more New York Times? Like there totally will be and they'll totally, like it's just, it's a medium and it's like becoming very popular and like it will be on many platforms and distributed in many ways. So um, I don't think that it needs public radio, but I think a lot of us are influenced by and inspired by it. Just like a lot of people writing at Buzzfeed have like read the New York Times forever, but it doesn't mean that like they have the same audiences at all right. or that they need each other in any way really. And, and I would go further and say that I think it makes a lot of sense that organizations like Buzzfeed or the New York Times do podcasts. I mean, they have this huge audience that they can point at something and you know, if you want to capture people throughout their day and their activities, like, okay, maybe you read the paper in the morning and then you want audio for your commute. Um, I think in the same way that video, you know, everyone was like, oh, everyone's going to be doing video. It just makes sense to do audio within those. That doesn't mean that that's the only, like, expression of this format. It just means, like, if you've got a large budget in your BuzzFeed, why would you not do podcasts? Like you're reaching people in a way that an article just can't reach them because they have earbuds in and are jogging, you know? Yeah. I think there's two examples of podcasts, at least to me, unless some, I'm wrong and somebody please correct me, of podcasts that have successfully generated audiences in here. And one is Night Vale mm -hmm. and one is The Read. Uh, and The Read was most recently like plugged in the gist, but I think that comes off the back of them actually generating enough of a momentum. And really, at least to me, they have really strong cultural cachet. I, I hear about the read a lot more than I expected to for a podcast, which has very little, at least to my knowledge, institutional backing. Yeah. Well, they're part of um, the Loudspeaker Network right now. Right. So they, they had, like, there was like that longtime show, um, Combat Jack, that re referenced them. But they told us that most of their listeners are happening on SoundCloud. Um, and if you look at their SoundCloud player, it's dotted with comments, um, which isn't how I think just listeners discover our show. Let's briefly talk about uh, networks, and then we'll uh, take questions and comments. Wait, can I ask the audience a quick question? Yeah, you want to do that now? <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah. Um, well, I want. I'm like curious to know, like, did you guys come here, or like who came here because you're interested in like getting into podcasting, like making podcasting, making podcasts, not podcasting, sort of. Cool. Who came here for the boost? Yeah, who heard there was free beer? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I think it's a good time to get into podcasting. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that. No, let's do that. Do you, uh, 
what are, are what are people doing well and what are people doing uh, poorly now that everyone now that we have the blogger of podcasting and everyone's sort of jumping in? I mean, <laughs> I, 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 if we all slowly turn our I, heads I, I towards Aaron, the, he'll the, answer. The uh, the major thing that people can do well who who want to do podcasts is commit to it over a long period of time. So most of the the podcasts that I've heard, um, our podcast was terrible when it started, just very bad. We didn't know how to record it. We didn't know how to edit it. We didn't know how to present it in a way. We had a website that was getting um, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people a month, and we like didn't put it at the top of the website. We put it on its like own Tumblr. So I guess I, I see podcasting as something that really um, rewards um, sticking with it. Um, and when I've seen podcasts that haven't succeeded, it's because it's like, oh, it came out once, and then it came out two and a half months later. Like, it's um, it's really a medium that um, rewards cyclical work. Um, so I, I think that the a mistake people make in podcasting is thinking, um, I'm going to make this like incredible, like great. It's sort of like a quick, dirty medium, in in my opinion. And just on that on that point, you're not losing audience as you're getting your early reps. You know, I think a lot of people get in their own heads and like, well, if I'm putting out something that's, you know, me starting and it's not the thing that I envision, uh, the audience will, will still be there later. They'll come around. When you pick up momentum, they, they'll, they'll find you again. You can delete those early episodes if right. you want to. Right. Yeah. Andrea, any advice? Yeah, I just, it's such an exciting moment to be a creator. Um, I was like recently called into a meeting with television and they're like, we want to do podcasts for television. <laughs> 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 How many times did they say serial in that meeting? They said This American Life. Okay. Yeah, they said This American Life. And then they were like, I was like, well, how do you like show things? Like, what's your visual idea? And they're like, you know, music videos. Just think about like music video, podcast. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but they were kind of having this moment where they're like, you know, television's in such disarray that like we can pitch anything and we'll have like a solid chance at maybe getting a pilot option. Um, and I was kind of like, oh, that feels like. So sad. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange, but it's like, I don't need television to make a television show and I don't need um, like a podcast network mm -hmm. to start a podcast. Like if you have ideas yeah. and if you have things to say, um, I think my favorite thing I ever did was starting my own podcast, and I don't even know what took me so long. I wish I'd started it from Wesleyan when I was in the computer science building and just like hanging out on the computers all night. Um, I should have just started a podcast right then. I think I felt like I needed Sounds permission. Sounds like a great podcast. It, I, <laughs> I had nothing to talk about or late say. Night, late night in Silo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I was like, I was experimenting with audio then and like editing like a little magazine for the radio station, but I should have just started a podcast because I thought you needed permission to do it and you just don't. And if you start building it, the audience will come. And through the process of making my own show, I found my voice. I figured out what I was interested in. I developed an audience. There's something really cool about having fans. Like, yeah. I don't know, it's the best. So I think everyone should not hold back and just start doing the thing you care about and you don't need a pilot. Okay, but what's <laughs> <laughs> not, I mean, there's also like a lot of value in, in having a good editor, in like being, becoming a good editor. And please, if you wanna start a podcast, like invest in a microphone. Don't just talk into your computer. It sounds terrible. Like it's it, it, those podcasts totally fail of people just like talking into a computer. So, um, but yeah, I feel like I've told people in the past like yeah, just like make your podcast. But at the same time, it's like it does actually take work and like good editing and like decent scoring and like you 
like you edit Mike's show, and I'm sure that you improve it by editing it. So, but I but I improve as an editor the more I edit, and and every episode of I mean, I just feel like that the way you I've built the, my most skills is by kind of faking it and then learning by doing. I, yeah. I, I agree with <laughs> with both of you in that. Um, all that stuff's essential, but nothing that we just described is inaccessible with right. like a MacBook Air and like two hundred dollar microphones. Like, um, if this there's a bar, but it's it, a well, low I mean, one. sometimes I think people need to like you know each fill a role. Like, if you and your friends want to do a podcast, like someone edit and someone host and someone produce the show or something like that. Like, um, it's not something that there's any uh, financial barrier to entry at all. And, right. And the other big thing I think about with podcasts is, you know, that it fundamentally is talking, but it's also writing. And, you know, you need to think of it as a craft and you need to think about the words that come out of your mouth as words that are composed. And the good writers are often good talkers and the people who treat the way they talk and the, the intros they, they do for shows as, you know, writing that gets edited and that gets run by editors and that gets said out loud before you actually say it into a microphone, you know, and that's just a product of caring. You know, if you have, if you're invested and you want to do it well, then you're going to just treat it as a, you know, with care. But I agree. I mean, the, bar the, the, the barriers have never been lower and people just need to do, do stuff. Nick? What? Yeah. Okay. Uh, any questions from the audience? We have a microphone floating around. Where's the microphone? There's Tim. Uh, Tim, just pick someone who's got their hand raised. I'm going to take a picture of the audience. Yeah, take a picture. <laughs> go like, yeah, sideways. Yeah, we can hear you. Great. Um, so in hearing all of you talk about some of the things that are uniquely good about podcasts, um, democratic distribution, it's cheap to do relatively high quality and then the distribution is essentially infinitely divisible and once again, cheap, cheap, cheap. Does some of that also make it a unique force for bad or evil? Um, and without getting into like where the responsibility lies, whether it's legislative or distribution or, or on the users, what are some of the more dangerous, dangerous instances where the medium has been used in ways you think are, are, are less, let's say, Could you desirable? be more specific and state sort of a hypothetical example? Sure. Um, we talked a little bit in the, in the first podcast shown about, uh, this is a cliche example, so I apologize, um, but about how once you're able to develop some sort of like channel of communication with the leaders of ISIS, uh, that you begin to see it not as propaganda, but rather, rather as a combination of uh, a propaganda and strategy. Um, and this could be a medium for, for distributing that widely, cheaply, and, and directly into people's ears. Isn't that pretty much like a danger of the English language, though, or any language that you can use it to communicate anything with people? So absolutely, but I think that the question I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to ask is, is more around, there are some things about democratically produced radio or democratically produced and distributed voice that elicit a unique emotional reaction um, and is there is there danger to that I guess I take that as kind of a like um, uh, you baby in the bathwater free speech kind of issue that you would find in, in any way of um, democratized publishing um, I mean certainly I can 
uh, imagine the scenarios that you're describing, but I, I find them kind of liberating, even if they're dangerous. Um, I think mass communication is not something that should be inherently feared. Um, and you see all this is in the history of radio. I mean, radio has this rich history of like these weird like spy broadcasts doing weird numbers um, that are still going. You can get like a short band radio and get weird encrypted number sequences that no one really knows what they are. Um, I think any chance that you have to beam out your voice to other people could be anything. And this is a little different, maybe even less dangerous than sort of you know state radio or propaganda over the broadcast airwaves because there's an active buy-in when you're a podcast listener. You have to sort of choose to get it as opposed to it's, it's there in the ether and it's you know, taken over the only radio options you have. Where's the mic? Right here. Right here. Uh, this guy. <clears throat> I got the mic and now I forgot what I was going to say. Right. Um, you should do a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Bakley Smith, class of 2000. And thank you guys for, for doing the uh, panel. My question, the, the, the thing that stuck out to me was this relationship with terrestrial radio or broadcasting. And uh, you know, I suppose the, the, what I understand from the television world is that like the, the ratings on television programs 20 years ago were way, way higher than they are now. But overall viewership of television product is way up. So it's gotten much more distributed, but less concentrated, but, but bigger. So this whole death of TV thing is not true. And I wonder, you know, what other forms of mass distribution are available to, because, I mean, I've done stuff, I have a website and, you know, I've had it for a while and I have a couple hundred visitors a month, right? And like, that, that's okay, I'm happy with it, but I don't imagine that without some support, some partnership, am I going to reach a big audience with the podcast? You know, like, there's so many. How do you get to 100,000 people a week without some support? So I'm curious what other vehicles from support, of support are there other than NPR, because that's the only one I can think of. Right. So the conventional wisdom, and then see if you can disagree or can tack on, is... You know, you, you are either part of a radio station and you have that audience. Uh, you show up on another successful podcast to sort of get your launch. Uh, you have a website that already has a lot of visitors and you point that audience to your podcast. Are there other things I'm missing in terms Networks. of... And a network. You build a network and you get to be part of a network. And that's basically, you know, having one podcast point their audience at another when you're part of a network, that's kind of the agreement that you're buying into. Do people go searching for podcasts other than the podcast? Yeah, your, your question is about curation. Your question is about user acquisition and audience generation from an industry-wide perspective. Is there like a paid search thing for podcasts? No, but there will be soon. The question was, is there a paid search thing a for podcast? Right? That was his question, just to make sure if everyone heard it. Um, Not really right. a universal Well, search, you know, no. people... The iTunes store is this big black box that sort of hangs, looms over us, but is this place where people 
uh, where you know mass audiences find other podcasts, and that's either because you go to the Slate page and you see the other podcasts that are there, uh, or because you just cruise through the recommended podcasts or the top ten or fifteen uh, or the categories. So there's definitely that element of some algorithm out there that's sort of deciding to present you with what to listen to next. I mean, this has been tried like in several different ways. There was. There's Stitcher is still out there. There's Swell, and these are all services that like uh, take a Pandora. I would say is the closest sort of model for them. But um, I think it kind of just depends on like what what the podcast is about. I mean, if you're doing a sports podcast, there's ways to publicize that and various sports websites that might link to it, et cetera. I mean, I think it's kind of one of those issues. Like it's hard to get anything to be well known, but in my opinion, the barriers to entry in podcasts are like as low as any kind of media uh, that you're going to find. Um, partially, I think, because there's a hungry audience and there's just not that much product out there. I mean, there's a lot less podcasts than there are any other kind of media that we could cite, I think. And there's a lot more talk about podcasts right Seriously. now than almost any other. <laughs> it is this moment. Yeah, I mean, get your shit out there. I don't know. There's probably like a thousand podcasts that receive any listenership at all out there right now. Is that I don't know. Uh, let's do two more questions. Um, right there. Where's the mic? Yeah, sure, sure. Hi. Right there. Um, <laughs> sorry, um, I'm from the class of 2013 at Wesleyan. Um, thank you all for being here. Um, I had a quick question. So the one thing that I love most about podcasts is that you're not distracted by visuals. Uh, you really, you really get to know what the person is saying. You're listening to them. You don't care about how they look or where they come from. You're really listening to what they're talking about. But as Jenna mentioned earlier, like the overall sort of general view that people have is that there isn't much diversity in podcasts. And so I'm a bit curious moving forward, like what are the ways that you guys would see diversity emerging in podcasts, especially considering that it does have this power behind it where you know, people can really listen to what other people have to say? Do you want to you take that on? I mean, you, you've been thinking about this. I have two. I mean, we're, you know, we're in a position to, m many of us are in a position to address that problem because we have big sites and we are making content that people are going to hear. So, you know, we, we talk about this a lot. And I, I think the way you solve the diversity problem is by having diverse programming. I mean, it's that simple. You, you know, it's an idea, but it, more, more importantly, it's just about putting different voices in front of microphones consistently. And you're saying just because there's not that visual element, how do you make sure your diversity is on display? or uh, they're not really that into this or that. Like for example, I work at a Asian streaming company and a lot of people who come to our site don't even look at the content simply because they see people that don't look like them um, and they move on. And I feel like podcasts is a really amazing way. Some of the stuff I listen to really helps me, uh, like as someone who is an was an international student at Wesleyan, really you know, look into a culture that I hadn't looked in before and hear what people are saying. Um, you know, get the news and at the same time listen to small anecdotes. Um, so I haven't really seen that many prolific podcasters that are diverse. Mm -hmm. So that's why I was a little curious, like, 
even if you do create this channel, what are the best ways that you can kind of get it to climb up the ranks or get noticed? I think some of it is about institutional backing, <laughs> quite, quite a bit yeah. of it actually. Um, like, yeah, I mean, and just being really like committed to it. Um, something that has interested me about BuzzFeed and part of why I wanted to work there is because they released this diversity statement um, maybe like six months ago uh, that was, it was about like how they see diversity and it was the first, like I feel like at a lot of nonprofits um, and just a lot of places I've worked, diversity is this thing that people do because they want to like look good to the outside world and they're like, Oh, if we like, if we hire this person, like it, that, that makes us look better. And BuzzFeed has this diversity policy that's like, no, it's good for business. Like, we're a we're a for-profit company, and we need to be making content not just for like one kind of person. You know, like we we if we made all like white podcasts or like all like white content, then you're appealing to white people, <laughs> and so like. I think what's been interesting is like we like I see it not just as like a great like as like an awesome thing because not enough people are making pod, like diverse podcasts but also like it is it's good for business and it would be really stupid and like short-sighted if we weren't making diverse podcasts and I am hoping that more and more people start to see things that way. All right, one last question. Well, I, I got a little uh, bit more on that. Yeah, actually. go ahead. I think half of it is institutional backing, but I think half of it is also those shows, you know, promoting themselves and pushing themselves in front of those eyeballs so they can be converted to earballs. And that requires this a lot more aggressive sort of, I'm not going to say marketing, but it's earballs. like... Earballs. Earballs. <laughs> but like, you, you gotta, I mean, if, if I made a show about being a yellow dude and it's about <laughs> other yellow dudes... I'm not going to be able to get my listenership if I plug myself on NPR. Maybe because the listenership is not that big in terms of the yellow dudes listening to... I don't know, maybe it is, I don't know. But I'm, I'm guessing it's not as big as white people. So where, where would I go? You know, where, where would I... I would go to places where yellow dudes and ladies are, like, reading shit. You know, and they're, like, saying, yo, listen to my ass. It's a good fit. So it's 50-50, I think. The onus is on both parties. And the onus is on the audiences as well to seek out... Um, you know, and aggressively participate in the creation of that diversity. I, I agree. I agree really strongly with what you said. In that, um, if there's someone out there who's sort of got like a little bit of a beachhead, and and you know, let's say, wow, we expected this diverse community of podcasters. Actually, only like one person podcasting in my community. I think that that is a place to start where you can say, okay, go to that person and say, hey, can I like help out with your show? Could I? maybe start my own show and maybe we could like form a podcast network. I mean, all of these things like this American life was just some show that was on WBZ Chicago, you know, that like happened to like succeed. Like I think that even one person doing a show can, can be the start of something larger. And that if, um, you know, I'm, I'm obviously not the right person to be saying this necessarily as a white man who hosts a podcast with two other white men. But uh, to quote Nick, uh, if you want to create a world of yellow dudes podcasts, like find, the, find your community and um, band together because all this stuff does work better when you're not alone. I mean, that's where all these networks come from. It makes sense to sell ads together and makes sense to trade knowledge. Um, I mean, that's how I, how I met Jenna was I had um, 
uh, Andrew uh, from the Believer on, he was like, oh, we have an awesome editor, and you know, all these things operate on a very interpersonal level of human connection. So I do think it is possible to build communities uh, within the podcasting world, and if they don't exist, I, I would hope that they will in five years. All right, one last question. Uh, what? Someone's already got it. The mic, is, the mic is loose. She got it, right there. Um, so Jordan and I agreed to split this question. This is Jordan. Um, Hi, Jordan. So my my question might not end up being a question about podcasts, but um, Aaron, earlier you were talking about uh, the, the sort of critical volume that a podcast takes up, um, and I feel like pretty much every other medium has assumed that uh, it's structure is such it takes up a certain amount of space um, and then recently each medium has kind of reduced itself um, in increments so if you take like the movie and the tv show and the youtube and the vine um, you can sort of like see the big fish eating the smaller fish um, so does audio have space for that reduction um, in content size and if so what do you think it looks like and that's not just a question for Aaron, that's for anybody. It's a big conversation, actually, right Yeah, now. I think so, yes. Um, I think part of it has to do with the tools. Like, doing really short audio can be weird, because one of the great parts about podcasts is you can leave them playing and not have to touch your phone and keep coming back to it. Um, but I do think that there is... I cited those like sort of Pandora-like experiences. Those might be very well suited to uh, shorter audio. So... I don't know, like, I feel like uh, if I, any, any statement you can make, you'll sound foolish in a few years. I would expect, like, people to be doing, like, eight-hour sagas and, like, 30-second experimental podcasts, um, both sort of fueling off of each other. Um, you know, like, podcasting at its core is really just, like, an adaptation of RSS. So, like, RSS is basically just, here's a list of links, and this is like, here's a list of links that refer to audio files. Like, that could, I don't know, you could really go anywhere with, with that idea if you create players that, if you created a player that was only for less than one minute podcasts and you listened in that way, that could be a whole world that is as big as podcasting is today. Um, that's the kind of thinking I think that, like, I don't know, like Twitter probably would sound pretty dumb if I, like, pitched it to my college senior self in 2003. So, I think it's just waiting for people to figure this stuff out. I think all of us feel like the big challenge or the big thing out there is, is a technological problem. You know, and people are waiting to make all sorts of new interesting things and we just gotta let BuzzFeed figure it out for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's obviously some pressure on me to like make audio go viral um, because that's kind of what BuzzFeed's into. There's a big conversation about viral audio and like we've, we've started to do fun things. Julia, who's here, um, is like, she's done a lot of these really fun like short audio quizzes um, and so that's like a fun way to use audio. I think what we wanna move into next is short run, short podcast. So like maybe like a f like five episodes, three minutes each of on all different um, topics. And they don't even necessarily have to live on iTunes. They might just live on like our site or on SoundCloud um, and, you know, concise and, and like fun and easy to listen to. So I think like, and I think a lot of people are sort of gonna start moving into that. And Slate has um, sort of started to play around with podcasts that are tied to something which has a short shelf life, right? 
Oh, yeah. Like, uh, we've done limited run podcasts. Um, we do these great spoiler specials after other things happen. Mm -hmm. But um, I had a friend who recently said, what if there was Instagram for audio? And my gut instinct was like, oh, that would never work. You know, I've been trying to convince my friends to let me record them for years, and they're so interested in it. But if the technology that caught up with us. That, that's really big in Brazil right now. Really? There's like a thing where you can record like less than 30 second audio. I don't remember. Is it? Yeah. yeah. And so my, my previous It's job, happening. Yeah. Um, and my old job was um, running this website called the Free Music Archive, which is a Creative Commons database of sounds and, um, and music. And they just had a micro song contest with like over 300 entries where lots of people want to make little tiny songs. Like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I'm optimistic for audio. Totally. All right, thank you very much for joining us. Aaron, Jenna, Andrea, Nick, my name is Jody. We'll keep talking, we have this room for a while, but thanks for joining us.